Welcome to Episode 9 of the Farm Exec Podcast. I'm Michelle Miscali, Senior Editor of Farm Exec Magazine. Hey guys, I'm Kristen Harm, Associate Editor of Farm Exec Magazine. For those of you joining us for the first time, Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights for the CC. So Kristen, what are we talking about on this episode? Today is so cool, Michelle. I'm, like, super excited because we have our entire team coming on the podcast to talk about each of our respective articles and efforts surrounding our May issue, which is highlighting our chosen five brands of the year. Yeah, I think it was actually a really good discussion, and at the end, we really had a good discussion about pricing, which was really interesting as well. Absolutely. Why don't we take a quick break, and then we'll come back with our Brands of the Year discussion. Michelle, have you gotten your nominations in for PharmaSec's Emerging Pharma Leader yet? Oh, no. I keep forgetting. I can't ever remember the link. Oh, no worries. The link's really easy. It's just farmexec.com slash leaders 2018. 2018 like the year? Yep, 2018 like the year. Go to the page right now and nominate yourself or someone else. Awesome. I will do it right after this podcast. everyone. Today is a special day as we have all of the PharmaSec editorial staff on to speak about our May issue, which we focused on our five brands of the year. So we have Lisa Henderson, who is our editorial director, Julian Upton, who is our European editor, Michael Christel is our managing editor, and then Michelle and I. And then we have a special appearance from our social media specialist, Lisa Higgins. Thanks, guys, for coming out today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, Lisa, um, could you give us a brief explanation about the process of how we all selected brands of the year this year? Sure. So, I think we've been kind of collecting our ideas around this since late last year and then at J.P. Morgan. And then, as a group, we sat down and went through, you know, what we had together from the EAB and from our choices and from our research. And then we narrowed it down to six drugs, basically, but five categories based on that. And, you know, we picked for different reasons. So, you know, we'll elaborate on why each one was chosen. They all reflect a specific challenge or issue for pharmaceutical brand managers and executives and commercial in launching their product. Great. Thank you. Julian, do you want to get us started? Yeah. Uh, well, I focused on the, um, the CAR-T cell therapy treatments, which have been in the news a lot recently, and that's CAR-T is a chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. Um, it's it's a, a new breakthrough, really, in, in gene therapy. And, um, uh, and because of that, we, we've got quite a lot of activity going on in that, in that field, and um, certainly now. So we didn't, I didn't focus on just one, but we really compared two, which is Novartis's Kimria and also Yaskata, which originally was from Kite Pharma, but um, uh, Kite Pharma were acquired by Gilead. So that these were treatments were pre- approved very close uh, within within two months of each other. Kimria was first at the end of August 2017 and uh, Yaskata was in October. So this is big, big breakthrough really uh, in the world of gene therapy. Just to go over what, I'll try and make sure I pronounce everything right, but Kimria is for the treatment of uh, B-cell acute 
lymphoblastic leukemia, and Yaskata is for adult patients with relapsed or refractory large B-cell lymphoma. So these treat blood cancers, essentially, and what both treatments do is there are processes involved extracting a patient's T-cells, genetically re-engineering them, and producing on their surface uh, these chimeric antigen receptors, and then the T-cells can recognize and attach to an antigen found on the on the T-cells. So they're engineered, effectively. The T-cells are re-engineered and then re-infused into the patient's body. Complicated stuff, but it, when they're in there, they, they then attack cancer cells uh, in the blood cancer and leave the other cells unharmed. So it's uh, absolutely uh, major stuff. You know, it's been on the cards, if you like, for a long time, but these two approvals uh, have brought it to reality. So that, that's what I talk about, and I think there's, there's lots to talk about with those treatments, but I think in terms of what we're doing on Brands of the Year, we focused a little bit on price here because, you know, for every breakthrough there's a, there's a price, and uh, that's literally the case So uh, in, in this, it, with these treatments. So um, Kimria is, is priced at $475,000 per treatment, uh, and Yaskata is 373000 So that obviously creates an issue. Um, a huge hurdle, of course, for system for healthcare systems. But during the course of my research on it, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review (ISA), you know, did did confirm that they were cost effective because Kimria was said to provide 7.18 more quality adjusted life years, and Yaskato was said to provide 3.59 more quality adjusted life years than the other chemotherapy regimens. So the high price tag is kind of justified, you know, but there's other there's other issues because um, both of them, uh, both of the treatments need the patients to go through a process of lymphodepletion, so they uh, with high doses of chemotherapy, which would add to the cost. So you're adding hospital fees, doctor fees, which could put, push the total cost per patient to over one million dollars. So we're looking at very, very, very um, high-cost treatment, obviously because of all the, the processes, processes involved. So that's the focus, really, for that. But I think just last month, Medicare have agreed to pay the, a Medicare payment rate of uh, $395,380 for Yaskata and $500,839 for Kimria. So that doesn't meet the total cost, as I've just described it, but, uh, you know, they've covered those initial price tags. So that's that's my focus, and perhaps we can go back to talking about all the other implications of these these treatments later on, uh, because obviously there's a great technological wave riding on this now, and these treatments are for blood tumors, and the next big thing, I think, is going to be solid, you know, the solid tumor treatments. I think it's so interesting you brought up price, because I have a feeling we're all going to be talking about that when, yeah. when you talk Kind of just natural. Thank you so much, Julian. Uh, Kristen, do you want to tell us about the therapy you wrote about? Sure. I wrote about uh, Hemlibra, which is from Genentech, and it was our first-in-class drug. It was approved by the FDA late last year in November for routine uh, prophylaxis to prevent or reduce the amount of bleeding episodes in children and adults with hemophilia A with factor VIII inhibitors. What's really significant about it is that it was the first new medicine for hemophilia A with inhibitors that's come out in almost 20 years. So it's really welcomed by the hemophilia community. The drug is the only self-administered hemophilia A with inhibitors treatment, and it's only administered once a week, which is an immense improvement over other hemophilia therapies. 
which can take 45 minutes every other day, or there are some other involved treatments that can take two hours and are required more than one time a week, maybe a couple times a week. So Humlibra is really a game changer for from our past therapies. In clinical studies, Genentech pursuing even more, less frequent dosing options for the drug, and they're trying to be mindful of quality of life and drug adherence factors. So it's a bit too soon to tell, but I do think that Hemlibra is going to be a really good benefit to our patient adherence rate. Uh, additionally, it's been proven to have a positive impact on people. I spoke with Dr. Galia Levy, who's the Associate Group Medical Director at Genentech, and she was telling me that Children are missing less school and adolescents who weren't able to play sports before because they were afraid of bleeding, they're able to do it now. So that's like pretty cool. And then, you know, there are adults who weren't able to hold down jobs that are now working. So it's definitely um, improving outcomes in patients. But even though it's, it's had successful approval and status as a breakthrough therapy, there have been some concerns regarding safety. So it was recently reported that five deaths were recorded among patients taking Hemlibra, but there are over 600 people who've taken the drug since the end of March, and only five people have passed away. And after doing um, an investigator's assessment and talking to the treating physician, they've come to the conclusion that the cause of death was not related to the drug. But they're making every attempt to investigate each report thoroughly and ensure that there's continued patient safety. And she made a really good point uh, when she was talking to me about the importance of understanding the reality that people with hemophilia may face because of the nature of this disease. Just because of what hemophilia is, um, it, it, you know, regardless of the treatment, they're facing pretty serious health risks. So I thought that was really important to pass on to our readers and now our listeners of the podcast. Um, and then, of course, Pricing, as you say, Michelle, I think we'll all be talking about it. This is what stood out for me when I thought that Hemlibra was a really good choice for our first-in-class drug. It has a pretty substantial list price of $482,000 for the first year of treatment, and then after that year, it's about $448,000 per year. But the totals are reportedly less than half the price of the other approved prophylactic treatments for the indicated hemophilia A population. So back in March, Hemlibra was reported to be cost-effective by the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review after they assessed adults, adolescents, and children with hemophilia A with inhibitors. And the report found that Hemlibra offers important improvements in outcomes for people with hemophilia A while lowering costs associated to the treatment. So it seems pricey, but it's actually an improvement for the patient population. That's great. I think that's something that we always have to consider. You know, the cost of the treatment is compared to what it would cost to treat the patient if the treatment wasn't available. Really great info, Kristen. Thank you. Uh, Lisa, so you had a really interesting one. Talk about some challenges. The staff knows how I felt about Brunura, which was the choice from Biomarin. We called it our choice from diagnosis to advocacy because of the strong roots of advocacy in this um, disease area. I I just feel like I did not do this topic justice in the pages. So I refer everyone to Biomarin's YouTube video, Race to Bernura. I highly recommend it. 
you need 30 minutes and a box of tissues because it is just amazingly touching. This is for an ultra rare disease and it affects children with a, a, a gene disorder that it's a protein enzyme deficiency and basically around the age of three, your child starts to physically deteriorate before your eyes. And it starts with seizures and then muscle problems. They lose their ability to walk. They lose their ability to feed themselves. They lose, then they eventually lose their sight. They are in a wheelchair and then they get dementia, which might be the blessing because they don't understand what's going on to their bodies. And they're usually dead by the age of 12. So I did speak to Bayer Moran. I spoke to, you know, the challenges around developing the drug and what they're facing now. You know, basically the drug has a long history of how it got to be. And, you know, it has to do with dogs. They found dachshunds that had the same enzyme deficiency. Like by a stroke of luck, they found these dogs. And they tested the replacement therapy on the dogs. And the difference in the dogs is remarkable. So they, Biomarin said, we're going for it, we're doing this. The problem is you have to literally inject the um, enzyme replacement therapy into their brain. So you have to drill a port, you know, much like, you know, when you get chemo, you have a port into their head, and then they get the drug every 14 days. So it's showing, it's halting the drug. If if these children are too far advanced, it doesn't reverse. I mean, not halting the drug. It's halting the progression of the disease so far. It's only been available since um, it was approved last year. And so it's been ramping up, you know, because it's difficult to get the hospital staff trained and get everybody on board because it's so, it's the oncology team because they usually do ports, but then you need the neurologist because it's the brain. And then there's just a lot going on with the delivery system around this drug, but it's literally halting the progression of the disease. But as I was saying, if you're too, if your kids are too far along, they're not going to be positively impacted by this. So Part of the next steps for the Bernier team and Biomarin is to make sure that the children are diagnosed much earlier. So that requires a biomarker panel, a gene test. So if your child presents with a seizure, your doctor should, you know, do this gene panel. Biomarin pays for it. And it can identify all different types of epilepsy, but it does identify for CNL2. So they just released um, a paper last month, actually, right as I was writing it, that found among the children that were suspected of having CNL2 or having an epilepsy, and they thought one did have CNL2, they found two more that actually had CNL2 and not just like another type of um, epileptic seizure. So that's really, really, really super good news for um, those parents and those children. So, you know, it is pricey, and they don't have any long-term. I guess when you say pricey, it's anywhere between $480,000 a year to $702,000 a year. But I didn't ask them about cost. I seriously just couldn't because you're talking about the life of your child, and I just I didn't want to go there. And unfortunately, also I found out right when um, we chose the drug in March, um, 
right at the end of March. The people that started this advocacy movement, the Van Hootens, are credited with starting this. They lost their second child to the disease. So it's it's just um, powerful. It's a powerful story. Thank you so much, Lisa, for talking to us about that. Mike, would you like to tell us about your brand? Sure. Thanks, Kristen. And I hate to, I hate to follow up Lisa's uh, uh, more kind of more serious uh, um, topic with it. a little bit. We'll segue to a little bit of a light affair in our brand of the year coverage. My product was um, Eucrisa, which is a new treatment for eczema, the uh, inflammatory skin condition. Um, Eucrisa was approved in late December, I mean, actually December 2016, as the first FDA-approved drug for eczema in over a decade, actually. So it's been a pretty quiet market for a while. It's made by Pfizer, which landed the drug when it acquired um, Amcor, which is a small biotech. It bought, it bought Amcor in, in June of 2016. So it's an example of a big pharma acquiring an asset from the biotech and, and hoping, you know, hoping to, to push it pretty far into kind of a underserved treatment area. Um, it's the first blocker of, of the enzyme PDE4 that's approved for mild to moderate um, eczema. And it treats anybody over two. So it could be infants, it could be children or adults. So that's rare for, you know, these sort of treatments that it, it covers everybody. Of course, if, if anyone's been reading about it, the big appeal is that it's steroid-free. So, you know, cortisones are, are typically the most used treatments. So they're frontline treatments for eczema. But, you know, a lot of people are said to be steroid-phobic. A lot of patients, they don't, you know, they're, they're kind of scared of, of applying steroids. Um, also, you know, steroids have been known to have some harmful side effects. So, Eucrisa is, is an alternative to that. Dermatologists say it's not going to damage your skin like a steroid might. It, it's actually, it's a natural, it's a natural cream. It's a topical cream uh, made of a natural ingredient, boron, I think, and it's, it's applied twice daily. But basically, we chose Eucrisa as a brand new leader specifically to highlight the product's national TV ad campaign, which we thought was really interesting. Um, we, we thought it was a, it's a good case study in how pharma has evolved its DTC strategy and outreach a bit. You know, trying to resonate better with you know with, with potential patients. Other industries have done well with it. Pharma is, trying, is sort of doing that as well, trying to change their approach. Um, you know, it's it's been an evolution over you know many years. You've seen it with other in other you know disease areas. Um, trying to, to be more approachable to the patient. Uh, Pfizer actually launched the campaign for Crystal last August. But they spent about 2.2 million, reportedly, on their first TV spot. Uh, they call that they call the first commercial "Nose to Toes," which I thought was interesting. Uh, and they sort of that's kind of the theme for their their commercials. They they use clever wordplay like that. Um, in the "Nose to Toes" ad, they they um, yeah they they played up the unique reach of the Crystal, but you know for kids and adults, not just adults. So the commercial opens up right away with, you know, a statement. Eucrisa can be used almost everywhere and almost everybody. And then it's got the commercial features kids and, you know, the kids doing various activities and various settings. And they sort of respond to that statement. So you have a kid, you have a, um, a wrestler who asks, um, you know, can it be used on the arm of an arm wrestler? And then you have a little girl dressed up as a fairy, you know, she's in a play. She asks, I've got the face of a fairy. Um and then, you know, then it sort of, then it, it, after that, it effectively latches on to the whole non-steroid benefit that I mentioned. The little boy, he's smiling in his pajamas, and he tells the audience. And it's steroid-free. So, you know, of course, they focus, focus on that angle. 
a lot. I mean, that's a big uh, selling point. Uh, there have been four commercials for you, Christian. Um, you know, they put a, they put, put a lot of investment into the um, campaign. It's also featured adults as well. So, the, you know, the one commercial had a female. It was depicting a female rancher, and she asked, you know, can you can you, Christian be used in the hand of a rancher, being a rancher? iSpot TV, I don't know if people are familiar with that. You probably are, but that's it's a good place to to look up a lot of these commercials. And according to iSpot, Chris's first ad has aired over 3,700 times. So it's it's been out there uh, quite a bit. iSpot also features metrics on audience response, including things like engagement ratings, attention score, and sentiment. The sentiment for the nose-to-toes Chris ad is currently at 61% positive. Uh, so I guess that's a, that's a pretty good number. I did speak with a brand strategist for the article that I wrote, and she agreed that the Chris is a good example of, you know, effective form of DTC marketing. Uh, she noted that, you know, as I mentioned before, that, that pharma TV ads aren't as nearly as clinical in tone as they used to be. You know, they're much more about lifestyle and keying in on uh, custom, you know, consumer insights to connect with viewers, you know, more approachably, you know, more human levels. Uh, Chris, you know, as I sort of gave an example of, pull that off with its catchy wordplay and its storytelling. And the strategist actually makes something interesting. She said, you know, the perception out there that, you know, you know it's only mild to moderate. You can live with that. It's not too bad. You know, why do we need new treatments you know, in this area? You know, steroids, you know, can do a pretty good job. Well, that's easy to say, right? I mean, but, but the message of this ad sort of conveys, it's, it's about you. This could be simply something that makes you better, you know. It, it tries to resonate right to the individual. It tries to be approachable. And then that, you know, the strategist that, that I spoke with said, you know, that kind of tone can give a patient a better comfort level, you know, that the person can feel, you know, maybe this is for me and it would be okay, you know, asking a doctor about it. And, you know, yeah. and then he prescribed the product. So we felt, you know, we felt that, that you, Chris, uh, trying to take advantage of its first first to market status, it really, really um, did a good job with its, um, its DTC campaign and, and was effective. And, and getting their getting their the name out there, trying to try to resonate more with patients. Um you know, basically seeing how the market's gonna shape up. But um that gives them sort of a first to market advantage. Cool. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for coming on and talking to us about that. Mm-hmm. Um, Michelle, do you want to talk to us about your brand? Sure. So I wrote about Genentech's Ocrevus, and this was an interesting therapy. When it was approved by the FDA in March of 2017, Ocrevus became the first and only approved disease-modifying therapy for primary progressive MS. And if you know anything about MS, you know that that um, specific area is one of the most disabling forms of the autoimmune disease. So it was a pretty important breakthrough. Um, the U.S. approval was based on its demonstrating superior efficacy on the three major markers of the disease activity compared to two other leading therapies that were already out there. So it's great. The therapy holds really great promise for patients and is really considered a breakthrough treatment. However, it is not without its challenges, um, which actually go beyond price, which is interesting. Um, The first issue that was really widely reported centered around patients actually being able to gain access to the therapy. And it's interesting because normally when we talk about access, it tends to center around shortages. But in this case, it was because Ocrevus must be given intravenously at a clinic. And doctors were not prescribing the therapy, 
because the clinics were too far away from where the patients lived. And it's not just a, you know, one-and-done therapy. You come in for an hour, you're done, you don't have to ever go back again. Uh, there's actually a decent time commitment that patients need to make, and there's also multiple visits that are involved. So it could create obstacles depending on a patient's location compared to where the clinic is. Uh, it's not really clear the number of U.S. clinics that are approved to administer the, the therapy or where a majority of them are located. I actually spoke to someone from Genentech, and they did tell me that, um, you know, they they said that Ocrevus can only be administered in an infusion center and said the company actually trains the infusion center teams on how to administer the drug. So this actually could, this kind of challenge could actually eventually possibly go away as more clinics get trained on it. Um, the other issue, as with pretty much everything that we've talked about and any breakthrough treatment, is going to be a price tag. And actually, I think probably out of all of the therapies, this is probably one of the least expensive. As of the article's publication and as of this podcast, Acrevis remains at the launch wholesale acquisition cost price of $65,000. And it's actually 31% below the annual price of their closest competitor. So it's kind of a good thing for Genentech, and they told me that it's actually been well-received by the payer community and that they believe their unique pricing strategy, along with the favorable clinical profile and a six-month admin administration schedule, has been or has resulted in positive coverage decisions. So it's obviously a little bit less expensive than the other drugs or therapies that we've talked about today, but obviously it's also still pretty costly. All roads lead back to pricing. (laughs) It does. (laughs) (laughs) Although when we're talking about Julian and Lisa, we're talking about where it's, you know, upwards of $400,000 or some cases all the way up to a million for total cost. When you look at a $65,000 cost, you know, it's it's a little non-comparable in that case. Right. Yeah, I think it's yeah, I think it's hard to to compare some of these products with price into companies. Yeah, yeah. It's not like a level playing field in that yeah. we're talking some very highly right. highly innovative treatments here and um, very complex, of course. I don't know if, if Hemlieber, but Acrevis and Lisa's Brineura and 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 the one I talk the ones I talk about are all involved. You know, being in a treatment center. And you know, having to go there and having this lengthy process, really procedure. So yeah. it's very different, of course, yeah. to, to compare just with a with a you know pill that you pop, right? So yeah, uh, the, the, the Bernura takes four hours to deliver, so the kids have to be entertained and their children, you know. So they're yeah, you know, they show pictures in the video of the kids watching, um, you know, iPads with cartoons and things. But the car T is tough. I mean, that is a tough delivery system because yeah. they have to be monitored, obviously, for immunocompromising situations also, yeah. you know, while they're yeah, it's not undergoing that. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, and also, I think what Michelle touched on was something else that affects uh, Yaskata and Kimria, and, and that is about access to the sites, mm-hmm. you know. And um, one thing that I didn't include in the article but uh, is interesting uh, is that it was the MIT Technology Review had this map where basically said that, you know, if you live in Arkansas, Montana, a rural mm-hmm. area, rural state, 
you know, you don't have access to easy access to these treatment centres, which is understandable. You know, this is early days, and they're they're focused in the urban areas, large population areas. So that probably will be addressed, of course. I guess, Michelle, to your point, that you know, are you near to or relatively near to a treatment centre? That's going to be an issue, right? That was a really great uh, discussion, guys. Thank you so much. Um, and for those listeners who don't know, uh, FarmExec is pretty active on a variety of social media platforms, including Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So to support our Brands of the Year article, our social media specialist, Lisa Higgins, hosted a Twitter chat to talk about the brand. So Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about the chat. So this is the first time that FarmExec hosted a tweet chat on our Twitter before, and it was something that we planned out weeks prior to the event, obviously, so people were aware of when it was happening and so we would get more participants in there. So we thought that this would be a great way to start off a different kind of way that we can engage with our readers and a way for them to interact with our magazine and also our editors because you guys also participated in it too. So during the chat, we focused on highlighting our Brands of the Year feature, which we just talked about, and we do this yearly. We actually held this before we released the actual article because we wanted to do this as a way for us to gain more of an understanding of what our audience expects from us before it actually came out. So, Lisa, what were some of the highlights of the Twitter chat? So, during the chat, we highlighted many different components of different social interactions. So, I used a lot of different things. So, I, I used the Twitter polls. So, I wanted to use those in order to gain insights as well as I also asked a variety of questions to gain more feedback on our audience's opinions of different company brands. So, you know, it was a great way for us to gather up information on what our audience thought would be chosen or should be considered for our Brands of the Year article before we actually release the feature to everyone and to our readers. So we definitely might be covering more topics and might be hosting a lot more different tweet chats in the future. So. Our listeners right now should follow us and stay tuned for future tweet chats to come, and that's at FarmExec. Great. Thank you so much, Lisa. You're welcome. And thanks for doing the Twitter chat. It was actually a lot of fun. So thank you to all of our editors today. It's, like, pretty cool that we were able to get everybody on our team on a podcast, and hopefully we can do a little bit more of this in the future. And now it's time for this week's leadership tip from Pharma Execs. Hi, this is Molly Harper, Vice President of Commercial Development at Axia Therapeutics. My tip for today is in marketing or in any area of leadership in our organization or industry, to start whatever you're doing with the end in mind and to be specific. Is your goal awareness? Is your goal to increase diagnosis? Is your goal for a patient or a physician to either change what they're doing or change the product they're using to improve care? There is a big difference in how you approach one goal versus a different one. But if you have a focus goal that's really specific, then you can unleash the creativity that's needed to see the exciting and tremendous amount of work that can be done to get you there. Thank you 
guys for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's Farm Exec podcast. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the Farm Exec staff is working on. Remember that you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter at farmexec, or on Instagram at farmexecutive, and on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of FarmExec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email editorial director lisa.henderson at ubm.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at todd.baker at ubm.com.